Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. Over the past several years, my team at the Digital Banking Report has asked financial institutions globally what their primary objective was. Overwhelmingly, is to create better customer experiences. The problem is that creating a great customer experience is no longer enough. Consumers are looking for financial advocates and ways to achieve financial outcomes that are better than ever before. They expect their financial partners to use insights available to provide a path towards a more secure financial future. I am excited to have Jane Barrett, Chief Advocacy Officer at MX Technologies on the show today. Jane will discuss the way data and insight can transform banking into an emotional relationship that can impact people, organizations, and communities. So welcome to the show today, Jane. You know, before we begin, could you share a bit about your background and your role of M- at MX uh, with our audience? Well, first, thank you so much for having me, Jim. It's awesome to be here. Um, my my path to fintech and my current role was a securitous one, as many of ours are, um, but very relevant to our discussion today. I had a whole career in the marketing world prior to fintech. So I'd run global agencies and clients working a lot with financial services companies around the world and had been in the digital space basically since the 90s. Um, I built a fintech business as a founder that helped people get started investing by using their financial data. Um, I was also a financial educator on the side with LinkedIn Learning. So I've spent a lot of time making the migration from taking money out of people's pockets as a marketer to helping them keep more in their pockets and grow it um, as a fintech professional. And uh, that brings me to MX. So I, it actually is a great way to join a company as a customer first. And I was a customer of MX's for a couple of years. Um, very much mission aligned in terms of how we um, go to market. And I've spent now the last four years driving how we bring the MX mission to life in the marketplace. And that covers everything from working with our customers and our partners on how to leverage data better, to working with regulators and policymakers to help people ensure that they can access their data safely and securely, as well as focusing on open banking and open finance collaborations to actually bring that to life. You know, MX is not not the first time we've had MX on the show. We had uh, Brandon and Ryan, uh, the founders of MX on once before, and a lot of things have changed at MX since then, but culture has always been the centerpiece of what MX is. Can you describe a little bit about a little bit about the changes that have gone on in MX before we get deep into our questions? So I think MX was founded on the vision of empowering the world to be financially strong. And there is a deep resonance, like DNA level resonance across the team, across our partners, across our customers, and especially among from founders and the executive team, that you know, we believe that financial services has a moral obligation to make the world a better place. And that was something that our recently departed friend, Brandon DeWitt, talked about a lot. Like he was such a huge advocate for our mission and the impact that we can all have. And I think that was his genius is not just, um, you know, setting a mission in stone and walking away from it. But, you know, Brandon and Ryan really brought that to life in a way that was just so profound. And I mean, we know in the marketplace that uh, it's a reason why many of our customers choose us. It's why we've had such great collaborations with different financial institutions and partners. And I think, you know, 
the strength of our, our culture and our um, commitment to our mission really means that, you know, we can build on Brandon and Ryan's legacy and, and vision moving forward. You know, we've got a great one other thing that they did beyond uh, building out an incredible culture and mission is build a fantastic team. And so the MX executive team and then all the way across the organization, we have people who are very deeply committed to, you know, our mission and this idea that, you know, we have a moral obligation to to make the world a better place. Well, it's interesting because your mission aligns where with most financial institutions' primary objective. They, when we ask, do research around financial institutions, they say that improving the customer experience is their top mission. And unfortunately, few organizations have committed to what's possible. We, we talk a good game. We don't implement it very well. Where do you see the biggest performance gap between what we say and what we're doing as financial institutions? So I think the the elephant in the room and the gap is often the fact that just as a business, forget anything else, as a business, financial services is still very much focused on selling products, getting more deposits, increasing share of wallet, right? This is the old school way that the business has grown. We do not and have not yet competed on outcomes, right? You've got a bank side by side with another bank. Am I going to have a meaningfully different outcome by choosing A over B? Right now, that's no, right? And I think, you know, a little bit around the, the performance gap is that the idea of customer experience kind of went into UX slash reducing friction, right? Do I really care as a consumer that my payment goes faster? Do I? Is that a meaningfully different outcome to me? But we've focused on things that have been more, again, user experience and customer experience that is, you know, meaningful metrics to an organization because, yeah, maybe they will choose my card because it works better than another one, but it doesn't actually make a difference to the, you know, the end customer. And a huge part of that is just this idea of opacity versus transparency. opacity has kind of been fundamental to the success of financial services industry. Like it's going on behind the scenes and not enough Americans or frankly humans anywhere have access to the entirety of their financial picture, even today with all of the amazing technology we have. And so that not knowing what's going on with your money fundamentally impacts not just your customer experience. It's like, okay, now I've got a mental load that I have to figure out between my bank, my credit union, my payment provider, my mortgage provider, my insurance provider, where am I, right? Of course, it's going to have a negative outcome for you because it's, you know, it's mental load, it's time, and you're going to miss things. We're human and we're busy. Well, it's interesting. The the banking industry is has benefited, I guess you could say, from the fact that Consumers didn't expect much from financial institutions. They were all virtually the same. They were very transactional oriented. They were very commoditized in what they did. They all, if you shut your eyes, you wouldn't know if you went into one branch or another unless the colors are different. How has the pandemic opened the eyes of the consumer as to what is possible through the use of data and technology and insights to create not better experiences as much as better and deeper engagements. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of expectations were pretty low, right? But if you think of even just going outside of financial services, once you've changed your behavior in a way, 
I'm, I've got a streaming movie from Netflix, you're not going to get in your car and drive to Blockbuster, right? Once expectations change, they change pretty fundamentally and, you know, permanently. And so one thing that the pandemic definitely accelerated was this taking your physicality out of the equation. I used to go to the bank because I felt better about whatever it was, depositing a check or, you know, things that were just ingrained behavior. And whether that was generational or behavioral, um, all of a sudden you have a massive amount of people that had never deeply engaged in a purely digital way with their money before. And I, I always like to kind of say that we talk about financial data, but your data is your money, right? Your money isn't a pile right. somewhere. It is your, it right. actually is the physical representation of your money, not some abstracted view. So if you, I think that's where the pandemic accelerated was, oh, my money is ones and zeros. My money is in, you know, apps now. Okay. So that was sort of step one. And, you know, having this experience where people can like, and, you know, we've all seen it in just terms of the rapid adoption of um, fintech apps, where, you know, the average person now has three to four fintech apps. Like this is not, you know, advanced, some sort of, you know, millennial or Gen Z, or they're doing all their things, you know, on their phones. It's like, Everybody is. So that is one huge piece of just the, um, the pandemic response. And frankly, the expectations did go up, right? I can move money seamlessly. Yeah. Oh, exa exactly. You know, I wrote an article for the financial brand on the importance of building an emotional brand in banking, which is kind of a, a not a novel concept, but it's not being done. Kind of like what Nike has done. I is this level of connection possible if mm -hmm. a financial institution leveraged the data, insights, and technology at their disposal today to actually differentiate their brand emotionally from other brands around the community? So I'm going to give an emphatic hell yeah, it's possible. Is it being done? Not really. I loved, uh, you had Jennifer Tesher on your, your podcast a few weeks ago, and I loved her her sort of uh, comparison of, I went into Warby Parker and everything was amazing. And then I went to you know, the bank with my daughter and was like, oh God, everything was bad. And it's not quite that black and white that it's always bad, but that was a very good and you know analog for, the emotional piece just isn't there in the way it was with her. Again, glass is a commodity. How did Robbie Parker do it? So this is a, um, it's not just possible, it's crucial for remaining competitive now, but also how are these institutions going to be multi-generational businesses if you don't have an emotional connection when the cost and the ease of switching now is so much lower? Right? It's way easier to, to add more, switch on over. So this idea of you know putting customers in that driving seat and having them um, actually you know getting transparency into their outcomes, into their you know what's going on with them, you can't get a better emotional connection than saying I helped you and your family this year. I helped you and your family you know, save more, reduce your cost of borrowing. You spent less time doing your banking so you could spend more time with your family. I will love you forever <laughs> if you can tell me that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You you, you mentioned Netflix earlier and, and watching TV, which is what you're doing, um, never felt like a very personal experience. You, you pick what you wanted to watch, you'd watch it, it'd be done. And, and you never thought that even the commercials were personalized to you. In fact, you'd try to skip through them. 
But personalization really is a key to this equation, especially in financial services that in the past have been transactional. But the transactional part of financial services is becoming less and less of a part of what banking really is becoming. I, I use my mobile app. My, my transaction may be processed through Bank A, but it's being processed through Apple Pay, which I have an emotional connection with. I have an emotional connection to Netflix and Hulu. You know, you've talked in the past about data as a currency, and you mentioned it just a second ago as well. And are we headed towards a time where there's going to be really a value transfer of how are you as a financial institution going to be using my data for my better experience and more importantly, my better engagement that I know you're working on my behalf? Yeah, and I think going back to your early question, there's a there's a value transfer going on right now, but it's going from the consumers to the institution. That's not bi-directional. <laughs> so just right, fundamentally exactly. changing that and using personalization to do it. And again, this is such a huge shift organizationally, strategically from just how um, companies are investing in that, again, my background in marketing, I know exactly when I'm being talked to and profiled as a middle-aged mom, Right. And it drives me insane. It's like, you know, have you looked at any broader picture about me versus just the fact that I have children? And the answer is usually no. So this idea of if I can leverage my own data to improve outcomes for myself, make choices for myself, that um, A, is taking my data out of the ecosystem. And again, I am not the typical consumer. I know way too much. But the fact that data exhaust is still a thing out there and there's a ton of companies making money on your data should be cause for protests in the street. It really should. It's not just like, oh, you get being used to target better ads. No, it can be, you know, as we've seen, fundamentally undermine democracy. Like this data is, you know, incredibly powerful. So this is where things like open finance are so important because it's not just about opening up an ecosystem. It's about enabling these sort of um, bi-directional exchanges where value truly can be brought to life. And, you know, we're seeing it already around just, you know, what might be conceived as niche use cases now, like let's say rewards points. Right now, rewards points are kind of hard to spend, but if you bring that into my financial picture overall and let me leverage it in a way that I leverage my money, awesome. Again, we'll love you forever. Well, it's interesting because from the very beginning of MX, I I remember being at a meeting of yours, gosh, it's probably now six years ago, is uh, when one of your, uh, the head of marketing of your organization had just joined the company. I went to one of your events and we we went around the the circle of the heavy users and said, how are you using MX data? And almost to a, a, a last person, almost every person was using the data you were providing, not really to provide great experiences for their customers or members, but using it to great, create really insightful reports. We're now moving to a point where you don't have a choice. You have to use data insight and empower people around you for better innovation, better customer experiences, and really deploying it in a way that's felt by the consumer. How are you seeing the data that you're providing financial institutions now being used better to create better engagement, maybe better stories, and most importantly, maybe better innovations on behalf of the consumer? What what are you seeing out there? So we're seeing a much broader use case, both use cases and then almost like less reliance on the size of institution or the type of institution. So it is 
you know, the data may be the same. It may be, you know, verification. But who's using data verification for what use case in a way that, again, is empowering that end customer? And so it's everything from customers like ours, like FormFree, that enable, you know, amazingly fast in the name the name of the company, form free, like mortgage applications. If you do not have to go through a pile of paper this thick and go through your, I still do have a standing filing cabinet here and scan things. And if you can enable people, and I think with form free, we, you know, we reduced the the time that it took for people to um, apply for their mortgages and their, or just in terms of collecting their data in an aggregate form by like 89%. Like that is huge so that may not seem like a huge innovation but it is because it has fundamentally changed that experience of mortgage application let's just say so it may be based on time it may be um you know things like bringing in alternate data sources for credit scoring right just what is out there and what are people permissioning to to bring in and then you know at the sort of the more meat and potato side of things is just providing transparency and allowing people to use their digital money management tools but layering like insights on top right insights and advice that is used to be up to you here's a pie chart good luck right and now it's like actually you know your life insurance premium is due next month make sure that money is transferred over things that can be a lot more um, anticipatory and frankly that is where that's the tracks that we're building and that's where the train is going in terms of self-driving money like if we can i know jennifer referenced this as well this is the work that we're doing now to enable way more not frictionless in terms of faster payments but actual frictionless in terms of the way that you have to manage your financial life with that in mind are you if you work with clients and you see how you're advocating for for the consumer across the board are you seeing more financial institutions now really hoping that mx takes them all the way to the water. In other words, a lot of times you thought, if I give them the data and I give them the tools, they'll use them correctly. But these people, these organizations, their time is so valuable right now. They're they're just trying, they're running, it feels running, just keeping up. Do you find yourselves building solutions that are almost turnkey where you're almost thinking on behalf of the financial institutions through how can we make it so we empower the consumer better? How can we make it where we're actually the what I call the GPS of financial services for the consumer, helping them with pre- predicting what their next step should be? Are you finding that the role of MX has changed over the last three to four years, actually having to go, I'll use a American football analogy, further down the field on behalf of your financial institution partners to try to make it so that they can break through to the consumer? Um, 100%. And I think, again, you know our origin story. And, you know, we started in personal financial management, moved into data enhancement, data cleansing, and now have really been focusing on just making sure that access, that connectivity piece is in place so people can, you know, actually access safely and securely their financial data. But like that whole pyramid together is absolutely how you take, you know, take customers to the water or take our, our, our partners all the way there. Um, a great example of that has been in our um, work in the open finance space. Again, we've partnered with all of the largest institutions that have APIs. They're up and running. We've deleted credentials. Like we have enabled token-based data exchange for the vast majority of anyone that comes through our platform. What we then saw is when you go outside the largest institutions is a massive gap, 
right, even into the super regionals, regionals, oh, you know, yeah. big credit unions. And that for us was not okay. We, we can't wait until, um, you know, the bifurcation of the industry is going to be a have and have nots. Is it lightning fast and secure? Or is it old school and, and uh, scrape based? So we actually built out a, um, a toolkit called MX Access, which institutions can use to build their own open finance APIs, right? And we would connect to that like any other partner would, but this is the sort of thing in terms of, I love that, you know, bringing people to the water <laughs> because it's like there is a lot of work to be done to transform old legacy systems and, you know, embedding these APIs that the institution can own and really build their own future on is a way for us to accelerate that. And even things like, you know, helping our, our customers update their risk models, right? What data can you use to update risk models? That's huge. And then like revenue streams and profit models, like there is so much going on. And I think the ROI from collaboration, there was a World FinTech report out recently. The ROI from collaboration, I think banks put it about 6%, right? We don't think we're really getting much return at all, like in terms of where we had hoped collaboration could come from. But so much of that is that you have to spend so much money on infrastructure just to make a connection work. And, you know, we've been, for some reason, okay with that old legacy systems for too long. Well, it's interesting is I remember now it's God, three years ago, two years ago, whatever it is now, they, they we, we lose time, but um, we're solution provider for me with solution providers at the financial brand forum to basically say, okay, how can we help organizations do what we need them to do? Even if they don't fix their back office, in other words, how can we use the legacy back office systems to work better than we ever thought we'd have to make them work on their behalf? So when you're working with financial institutions, I mean, what you provide, what other solution providers provide in many different ways always seems like, oh my gosh, this is a no brainer, but not everybody implements it, and even those that implement it don't take it the full way. What stands in the way from your perspective of why organizations don't embrace the opportunities you're talking about or have a challenge in actually making it all put together and, and go forward? So I'll, I'll answer on two levels. I mean, our biggest competition always is stasis. Something isn't broken. Let's just, you know, keep on doing other stuff and layering things on top. And so... The way that institutions make money is pretty foolproof, right? Take money in, borrow it out, keep the float, right? It's, and that has been, why would we break that? Until there is a, you know, legitimate and there absolutely is a groundswell of legitimate competitors at the fore that uh, need to be taken seriously. I would say the second piece around this, and like I said, having been in the digital world since the 90s, I'd spent at least a decade, you know, advocating for digital literacy against a lot of resistance and stasis. And it's like, I don't care what someone had for breakfast. Like, social media is not important. It's like, front door to the world, people, but okay. So what we're seeing now is this sense of data is kind of where digital was in that it belongs over there. It's the cheap data officer and the data's organ. It's like it's everywhere. And there's, this is not true empirically, but there is themes across the business that um, embracing data means dashboards or a data lake or isn't that our cloud services job or versus like this fundamentally can change how our business works. And that feels like, you know, one of the biggest things standing in the way is just the opportunity 
isn't necessarily there. But having said that, you know, we've seen amazing innovation, like my friend Josh Rowland, lead bank in Kansas City, right? A, a small community bank implemented, you know, very strategically API embedded finance for their local fintech community. And he did this years ago. Right? So the innovation is happening there, um, but it tends to be, let's just say, more human-driven versus you know, strategy and industry-driven. Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned it, but um, success, financial success, and we just had an interview with a, a major financial institution, and you know, their numbers are the best they've ever been. So that makes change difficult because why break it if it's not broken? Or why fix it if it's not broken? The reality is it gets down to legacy leadership. Uh, and, you know, I've had many engagements with your team and it always comes down to if the if the top doesn't believe that it has to be fixed, it won't get fixed. And the challenge now is every change that happens now happens in quarters, not in years, or in months, not in quarters. And it's happening faster than ever before. So you're you're only one innovative organization away from losing an account. And and you know, Ron Shevlin wrote an article for Forbes this week around the fact that Chime and PayPal and Square and and other fintech organizations now are getting a lion's share of new accounts, but there are more people than ever considering these their primary financial institution. Now the challenge is that the legacy financial institutions aren't seeing closing of accounts, so they don't see any difference. Of but they don't ask. They don't ask their consumers. By the way, where else do you do your banking? Or as your firm does, they don't track the transfers between the one institution to another organization to say, "Geez, you know, Jim, Jim's doing transfers to Acorns seven times a week of different amounts. Is he more aligned and loyal to Acorns than he is to XYZ Bank, or is he more committed to PayPal because they will continually give them him solutions in the marketplace while his legacy bank is going to take three to four weeks to get it implemented? You know, it's, it's very interesting how it's going right now. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So Jane, the extension of using data and insight for building a great emotional connection in banking is to actually participate in open banking platforms. How do you see the future of embedded financial experiences? So I think, again, so much of 
the industry has been built around, you know, I am the primary provider. I am the, you know, I am the place as an institution where someone's paycheck goes, so I'm good, right? I don't need to know anything else. I've won this customer. I'm just going to sell them more things. The idea about an open banking platform is that people's data should be able to move freely, securely, you know, with permission and the ability to revoke it in a way that is going to improve their outcome. So, you know, you have your car loan with Ally and you have your business banking with PayPal and you've got your primary institution, your local credit union, but, you know, you are six or seven different gyms, right? An open banking platform recognizes one gym, right? We get that. In your, as long as you've permissioned it, right? You have said, okay, credit union, here I am. Here's the seven gyms. That's me. But can you make this easier for me? Right. And that emotional connection, you like financial institutions and frankly, even legacy fintechs who have been around now long enough to be considered financial, like legacy institutions have a huge advantage in terms of trust. Right. So trust is the bedrock on which the whole industry has always been built on since the days of the Medici. So now how do we take that trust and allow people to exist in multiple places securely connected, you know, in a way that works best for them. So the future of these experiences, you know, really comes down to the shift from being always human directed. I have to press a button to make the payment. I have to remember to pay my life insurance premium to more anticipatory, right? Self-driving car, self-driving wallet. And that you know, you need to have the trust, you know, to get behind a Tesla and then it's not going to kill you as you drive down the highway. And that is a huge lift that is 100% data driven, right? You have to know who you are, what you've permissioned and what's going to work for you in order to enable that trust, you know, for these embedded financial experiences in the future. So we've got, it's like we always un- un- underestimate how quickly change is going to happen. But, you know, I believe like this is within three to five years that we're going to have more of these self-driving experiences that are based on embedded finance that are predicated on an open banking infrastructure working. And and are we maybe moving just as quickly towards something beyond open banking? So almost an open, an open experience that goes beyond banking and really takes into account what I care about in my life what I care about in my business, what I care about in my family. Because the reality is if you if you build the transactions, you're going to know more about me and what really makes a difference. It, our environmental concerns of high interest to me, our, our social issues and our um, equality and equity more important. You're going to be able to see this through the transactions, but it's more than just open banking. And this provides also some new revenue opportunities, which gets out of financial institutions only based on the revenue model on the financial relationship, doesn't it? A hundred percent. So again, the more that you can empower, like you say that, you know, you care about environmental concerns. Okay. So let's just say, you know, you don't already bank with uh, Andre at Aspiration, but you have expectations of your own institution that, you know what, steer me away from companies that are, you know, over-indexing on on climate harm, for example, right? We can do it now. We can do top-of-wallet optimization based on geolocation in apps. It's not happening, right? But it absolutely could. Oh, you just drove into 
XYZ gas station, actually the one next door has a better environmental impact, right? That is trust building. It is, you know, meaningful to you. And it is a huge differentiator. If one institution does it and your other doesn't, guess where you're going to lean towards for the next time? So that is a very niche use of data just based on your one (laughs) description. But they're the sort of things. And then extending that out now to how is that a revenue opportunity, right? There is, and we always seem to go straight into, well, embedded finance will be a new revenue opportunity because it can make any business a financial business. Um, That is 100% true. But there's still more, well more beyond that as to what it means. And going back to things like, you know, is there going to be a, a value exchange on a, on a data perspective? Can I, A, save money as a human and B, can there still be revenue streams into um, different sorts of companies? And, you know, we, we believe that we're only seeing probably 20% of the use cases around embedded finance and open banking now, and they are going to come at us thick and fast. But, you know, if you think of just the vision of the banks who drove things like Uber money, right, who could have seen, you know, basically Uber is a financial services company with ride sharing attached. They do car loans, they process. Starbucks is a, uh, a financial institution that sells coffee. Yeah, exactly. So it's easy to say these things in hindsight and they're two big brands that we all know and love, but like these changes are happening real time now across the board. You know, it, it's interesting too. We, we're just starting as you, we keep on referencing all these things and, and you realize how far from where we need to be we are. But the good news is we're moving quicker than we ever have, and it's going to get faster and faster. And part of that is also using alternative data sources. Because the use of alternative data sources, everything from rate and ut- uh, rent and utility payments to other sources of data that build a better picture of the human, allows you to reach more people that have been underserved in the past. And and I know your organization has been at the forefront of this. You've been at the forefront of it as as a, an individual when you're working with governmental units and other organizations, as Jennifer has in in saying how can we allow organizations or enable organizations to work with a broader array of consumers based on things other than a credit bureau. I mean, I. You know, I, I went through this with my son and buying his first car. I'm going, you know, he's more responsible with money than I am. And I got a co-sign for him just to get him a credit. And, and you go, this is, this is easy compared to anything from immigrants to people that have very thin data files. You know, where do you see this going? The alternative data and, and, and new data sources is part of this whole equation. So this is, and obviously, you know, financial access, financial inclusion, financial financial outcomes are a core part of our whole business and and vision. And this is a fundamental feature of like an open finance regime. So if you think of like an analogy, um, hard to score small businesses, they've been able to use cash flow underwriting, cash flow based underwriting to be able to get um, lending done for, or secured for their business. That can and should be true for underserved consumers as well. Have you paid your rent on time? Can we see your utility bills? Like you're, you may be thin file or like no file with the credit agencies, but you've got a whole financial life out there um, in ways that can be validated through secure data exchange 
that can um, ensure that you know a better picture of you is being um, is being presented. And I can say this as an immigrant, but you know I've lived and worked in six different countries, and getting my head around the U.S. credit business, it's like I wanted to buy a car when I got here, and it was like, well, you should borrow money to buy it. I was like, wait, what? Oh, you need to take out a store credit card. It's like, why? And so many of the things that were fundamental to my core beliefs of financial health had to be thrown out the window because the system was so predicated on just your ability to secure the credit, but then not actually spend it. Like, bizarre. So that there is a long way to go. We interviewed uh, the founder of Nova Credit. It was just very interesting to see they're making a whole business out of transferring credit bureau reports from different countries to enable or, you know, people to do something that we take for granted. But it, it's, it doesn't matter how long you've been here. If you haven't built a U.S. credit bureau, which by the way, takes your credit bureau to build, which is kind of insane by that whole concept. You know, and if, you, if you're not a heavy credit user to begin with, it comes at you at the worst possible time. Always. And I mean, this is not a small problem. This is, I think, right. the Fed said it's about 46 million people in the U.S. That so is like a huge, almost 20% of the whole population that is underserved, underbanked, and it's just, or unbanked. Like, this is a big problem to solve. So, so Jane, to wrap up today's podcast, which I really appreciate your participation in, what's the greatest opportunity in the banking industry today in the next two years? I'm, I got to take it way down because too much stuff happens in such a quick time. And I keep on telling our listeners, don't start making annual plans. You got to make quarterly plans and monthly plans to get things done because there's so much to do. But what do you see as the biggest opportunity in the really short to moderate term? So the biggest opportunity is this fundamental wholesale shift from let's just keep on selling products and focusing on share of wallets and our deposit number to how do we actually improve outcomes for our customers, right? That is, and it is clearly longer than a quarter or two away, but if you're starting with that as a vision, knowing that, okay, we want to be that partner of choice for self-driving money. We want to be the one that knows all seven gyms. And then that starts with, right now, implementing open banking and open finance and sort of the data portability view of things that, again, is a huge shift from the data belongs to me, which when you sign up for a bank account, you are signing over those you know ownership rights of your data to that institution. If you can fundamentally shift that, it has this massive trickle-down effect on, oh, wow, there are new business cases. Oh, there are alternative data sources. Oh, we can build trust and build our brand and build emotional experiences and all the things that we've been talking about. And that, honestly, from like the early days of the internet, is such a huge opportunity, like a wholesale shift from commodity to a value-added partner. And that's what I'm excited about. That's what gets me up in the morning every day. It's what drives MXs. Like we we all have a very big job to do, big moral obligation to improve outcomes for humans and make the world better. And, uh, you know, we tend to get caught up in things like cloud infrastructure. Well, that'll solve anything. It's like, yeah, but cloud won't change the strategy and it won't change the vision like change the execution so that's where we think the biggest opportunity is is just letting the data go free and letting the market um, really start to up level competition you, you said it so well if you don't set your destination as better financial outcomes as opposed to more efficiency or some of the legacy ideas we have out there 
you will never get there or you at least won't know how to get there and you won't know when you get there. So, you know, I, I, I my analogy is always the GPS system, but, you know, you got to set that destination and you got to be committed to it. And, and again, it stops at the very top of the organization saying, once you have the top saying, this is what we're going to do, you're more apt to get there. If it's simply, oh, we got to use data and analytics more efficiently, you go, ah, that's not a mission. That, that's that's a job. It's a task. It's a tactic. Yeah. Jane, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's, it's, it's been too long. I, I miss you and your team. It's been a while now. It uh, seems like time goes so quickly without seeing people that it's, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you. and very much appreciate being on the show today. And uh, all the best to you, Jim. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, raise a top five banking podcast and the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed today's interview, please give our show a five-star rating on your preferred podcast platform. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember that in a world of commodity banking brands, you can only differentiate your brand by partnering for better financial outcomes.